helpful end-of-the-world expectations is the subject of message number six in our series, Thriving in the World. Dr. Joel Hunter has selected Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 14, as scripture text from the New American Standard, and it reads as follows. And Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. And you will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come. And now let's join Dr. Joel Hunter as he continues in our series, Thriving in the World, and his message, Helpful End-of-the-World Expectations. Stan Rosenberg, I hope you're here. Otherwise, I'm going to have to ask Joel to blow the shofar this morning. Here he comes, yeah. Stan Rosenberg is uh, part of our body and is a completed Jew. I think that's a politically correct expression to use with that. Stan is going to explain to you why he's carrying these uh, big horns this morning. This is the ram's horn uh, mentioned in Scripture, uh, this, the trumpet or the horn, trumpet of God, about 150 times. Uh, commemorative of the time of Abraham and the binding of Isaac the revelation of God at Mount Sinai, Joshua surrounding Jericho. And next will be the trumpet of God when the Lord returns with a shout in the trumpet of God. This is a uh, larger version. It's um, the antler from a, an African antelope called the kudu. And uh, particularly at this time, last Wednesday night started the seventh month of the biblical year, and Leviticus 23 talks about the Feast of the Lord. Verse 23 talks about the Feast of Trumpets, which is honored by the blasting of the horn, which this is. So I ask that you uh, maybe close your eyes, open your hearts and your spirits and experience this. And the next time you hear this, if I'm not here, look up because your redemption will be here.
you remember that? <clears throat> you know, when most people think of the Trump, they think of Dizzy Gillespie or, you know. Yeah, no, that's the Trump. I am really excited about uh, the coming preaching in the next weeks and months because we are going to be painting a picture of the eschatology. Eschatology, that's E-S-C-H-atology. <laughs> I, I can't even spell it myself. Eschaton means the age, and ology is a study of the last things. And as you will hear, Jesus may come tomorrow, he may come another thousand years from now, but he is building a community that is sure and certain and that is pictured in Scripture. And I want us all to be aware of what that community looks like and what it is. For a very good reason. Because you live life much differently building the future than trying to repair the present or the past. Now, if you will turn to the 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew with me, if you have your scriptures with you. If you're not, if you don't, don't worry about it. I'll read it to you. We will be, we begin to lay the foundation of what is indicative of the last things, and then we're going to go from that to the imperative. Now, you English majors know this. The indicative gives you information, and the imperative commands you. That, by the way, is the way the scripture is laid out. First, they give you a picture of what life is and what it is to be, and then they command you to live it out. Now, the scene is this. This is just this is called the, the little eschaton in the, in the Synoptic Gospels. This is this in, in Mark chapter 13. The scene is this. Jesus has just wept over the city of Jerusalem because they would not come to him. Uh, you read that in, the, in the, uh, uh, chapter, Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being made desolate to you. Now, as they come out from Jerusalem in the first verse of the 24th chapter, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. What was that conversation all about? The disciples probably could not imagine such a culture as strong as Judaism, symbolized by such a magnificent building. I wish, I wish you could get in your mind's eye the picture of the temple. This was white marble, absolutely glistened in the sun. The blocks of stone were sometimes 50 feet long, 24 feet wide, 16 feet thick. And the, the disciples come to him and, and say, look at this. It's going to be made desolate. They couldn't imagine a culture as strong as theirs being laid waste. And Jesus said, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. It wasn't a matter of just 
conquering. It was a matter of disassembling. And not 40 years later, under the Roman emperor Titus, not by his command, but one of the soldiers set fire to the temple. And as the gold on the ceiling, on the, on the, on the walls melted, the gold melted in between the stones. And the attack from the Roman soldiers... When they heard that there was gold in between the stones, they tore every one of those stones apart to get to the gold. And so literally this prophecy became true 40 years from when he said it. Although they couldn't imagine something so strong being disassembled. Now, read the rest of this with me. Just the first 14 verses. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? See, the Jews fully predicted that someday God would come and form a society in perfection because they knew very well the society they had was not perfect. Jesus, said to him, Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. In other words, this is a, this is a present imperative. This, this says you can resist being misled. You've got it within your capability not to be misled. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. And you will be hearing wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. In other words, that's just a part of living in the world. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Remember how I said last week, According to Arthur Schlesinger and many others, America is disuniting. It is breaking down into groups or kingdoms that are living separately. Kingdom will rise against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all of these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. And then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now, here you have a negative of the picture that God wants to build in the, in the, in the eschaton. Most people's love will grow cold. That's the negative. The positive is the next verse. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations. And then the end shall come. I would like to teach us a whole different way of looking at history. Because the way that we all look at history is the opposite way that the gospel pictures history. Most people see history as beginning and progressing toward an unknown future. But the gospel and the vision of a sovereign God has just the opposite. In the gospel, a sovereign God has already determined the end. And so it is a reaching back to lead people toward a determined future. 
One person who is very good at this kind of theology is Wolfhart Pannenberg. Now, if you had a name like Wolfhart Pannenberg, you'd probably become a, histor- or a, 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 theologi- a theological historian because you couldn't do much else. Wouldn't play, let you play football probably and so on and so forth. But he says we have to realize a whole different way of living because the eschatological history, the reaching back from the future is the way that Scripture reads. And you know yourself, there's a whole different way of living life when you have that kind of theology. There are basically three ways to go into the future. One is to try to fix up your past. The things that have gone wrong, to try to set them right, to try to reconcile yourself to them, to try to mend them. And so basically you are backing into the future, thinking, if only I can get uh, these catastrophes or disasters in my past life reconciled or taken care of, then I'll have a better future. But ask those people what they see for themselves in the future, and they have absolutely no idea, other than just the absence of pain. The next way is to say, ah, those guys are a bunch of weenies. I, I don't worry about the past. What I do is I just take care of the problems as they come to me day to day. And these picture, people picture themselves as, as just fighting the battle. You know, you know, the, the old karate, you know, the arrows go to them and they just fight off the arrows. And they say, if you can only cope and successfully mend today's problems, the future will take care of itself. Again, ask them what their vision is of the future. They have no idea. All they know is that every day they're tired, and every day it doesn't look like things are getting any better. But they've survived one more day. That's not the life God has for you. The life God has for you is one that says, I can give you a picture of what your future will be as a people, and you can begin to take that blueprint and build it now. Because you know what? Everything you're building that's not in accordance with that picture is going to be burned up anyhow. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So why spend your whole life just trying to cope when you could actually be building something that will last. That's a whole different deal. An article I read by uh, Warren Hurd, who is the, uh, who's a pastoral counseling guy at Trinity Evangelical. We've got a lot of Christian counselors. I always point to him here. Um, who's, the, who's the head of pastoral counseling. Wrote an article called Eschatological Psychotherapy. That's pretty cool, isn't it? See, I was really drawn to that one. He said that the way we usually do counseling is that we go into the past and try to resolve the conflicts that are unresolved. And, and of course, if you have those unresolved conflicts, everybody lives kind of here and kind of here. Everybody has that. So, so it is important to resolve some of those. But what really gives power and direction to therapy is to envision the future. And hardly any therapy does that. It totally concentrates on the past or what you're trying to deal with in the present. You parents, let me ask you this. How do you raise children? Do you raise them in reference to your past? Oh, my kid's doing this. 
Well, I did that. I didn't turn out too bad. Gives you a little perspective, you know. I guess it'll be all right. Do you, do you raise them according to how you can successfully cope with their behavior in the present? Boy, that's obnoxious. I've got to figure out how to eliminate this behavior because that's obnoxious. Or do you say, you know, hopefully this kid's still going to be alive 60 years from now. How can I build into his character what I know God wants him to be 60 years from now? How can I say to him, you know what, if you want to be this kind of person in the years to come, this is important right now. A vision to the future. Occasionally I teach uh, church leadership at Reformed Theological Seminary. And in doing so... I read a lot of people who have written about visionary churches. I don't see very much vision in visionary. I don't see a lot of church leaders in this country leading organizations according to how the community is going to look in the eschaton. What I see is a lot of extrapolation. All the churches like this now, now if we can guess what that will look like 20 years from now, then we can lead our church. And that's exactly how people do their lives. What do you want for your life? Well, I want my life to be better 10 years from now. I, I want to do things that I'm doing better than I do now. There's no power in that. There's no vision in going into the future. You see, when God made this book, He made it in a certain way. He gave us the indicative. He gave us the picture. And then... He gave us the imperative. He gave us the command to live it and to build it now. When uh, the writer of Romans wrote that book, the first 11 chapters, he said, this is what, basically, this is what the, the world is going to look like. And in the 12th chapter, he said, I urge you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed into what? Into that picture of what God's building. Even in chapter 6, he did it in microcosm. In chapter 6, the first, I don't know, seven or eight verses, he says, Therefore, sin is no more, he said, sin is no more master over you, because it has died with Christ. But then he said, Therefore, do not go on yielding your members to unrighteousness, but to God. You see, there was the indicative and the imperative. There was the picture and the command. God gives us a picture of the future. He gives us what He's going to build. That's the mystery that has been revealed to us. It's been revealed in the microcosm of the body and the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the entire history of the world with skin on. And Jesus Christ is not only the history of the world, but Jesus Christ is the history of what the world is going to be. It's Jesus Christ who the Bible says died and was, erected, was resurrected and in the words of the Apostle Creed, Went to sit at the, he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus is ahead pulling us forward. And in him we've got to see what God's doing in the whole pattern is very important. Let me, let me take uh, just a couple of examples here. 
and show you how different your life will be if you can grasp this concept. You know, it's almost like looking at one of those... Uh, you, you've seen these pictures in the malls now? They're, they're like holo something or other. Holo graphs, holo illusions, holo optics. I don't know what they are. Maybe you haven't seen them. I can't name them. Um, but the, on first glance, we've got, a, we've got one upstairs here. On first glance, all you see is a mosaic of different colored lines. But as you look at this thing, kind of stare at it, you know, suddenly it takes depth upon itself. And the one upstairs, I'm sitting there looking, I go, hmm, that's pretty. And it went, and I go, hey, there's fish and whales and birds and palm trees. You see, there's a whole different, that's what this book is like. There's a way of reading and saying, oh, this is nice, this adds to my life, this is good. And then, periodically, God reveals the deep mystery of the whole plan that he's building. And if you can build according to that whole plan, you can more than just fragmentarily put your life together. You can live according to what God is building for sure in the future. It's a whole different life. It gives you courage. It gives you purpose. You know, when David faced Goliath, why did he face Goliath and be absolutely not afraid? Is it because he's an idiot? No. It's because he knew God had given that land to Israel. God had already promised. It was a done deal. And he was living according to the picture of the future, and he was going to build it. And if he got killed, he got killed. But he knew that it wasn't him going up against Goliath. It was Goliath going up against God, and that's a whole different picture. And when you build your life according to what God's going to do, it's not you going up against life. It's life going up against God, and that's a whole different picture. Goliath couldn't believe it. You know, David goes out there with a stick. And Goliath looks at him and goes, Am I a dog? What, you send me a kid and a stick? Come on! And David looks at him and says, You know Goliath. He says, You come with a sword and a javelin and a spear. And you mock God. Parentheses. Your big mistake. <laughs> because today, Goliath... Well, let me just read it to you. First Samuel 17. Because this day... The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. That's what he said. Try it in the book. I'll remove your head from you. And uh, by the way, the rest of the armies, well, the birds and the dogs get them. Not only that, I love this part. Goliath. Gets up. Now look at look, it's in, it's in uh, verse uh, 48. And then it happened. Ta-da. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, what did David do? Did he just hold fast, hold his calm? Look at them. These words are unbelievable to me. That David ran quickly toward the battle line. To meet the Philistine. I, David didn't, just didn't hold his ground. He started running toward Goliath. Must have psyched him out completely. 
Here comes the new. I mean, it's like the first time Muhammad Ali faced Sonny Liston. Nobody could believe he didn't have the guts to do it, but Ali just goes up and starts yakking at him, taunting like he's the champion, see? Bad analogy, but this is what David's doing. He's running at him. Bad analogy. Bad analogy, but that's what he's doing. Grabbing the stones while he's running. See? Why could he do that? Because he knew the future. He knew what God was building. He knew that was the land. He had the confidence of building toward a blueprint that he had already seen. You know, when you read this, let me let me give you just one more example. I, I, this uh, I've got so many. This is about a three-hour message, and it's going to come out a little bit every time. But this is God. I want you to know that that the Holy Spirit scanner is searching, and He's going to pull out what you need. So. So if I get a little discombobulated, just listen to the fragments and it'll come. When the church says, God heals, what's the first thing that you think about? Well, if I get sick, God will make me not sick. You know, maybe God will make me not in pain. Or maybe God will cure a disease I have. And there's nothing wrong with that. To want that, to ask for that. But healing is so much more a part of the community that God is putting together in the future. And if you miss that picture, you don't think about healing except for when you're sick. You don't understand what God's doing when you're not sick physically. Let me just show you an example of this. In Exodus chapter 15, they're coming out of slavery. Now I want you to get the symbolism here. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. Marah means bitter. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the, the Lord showed him a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And he therefore made for them a statute and regulation, and there he tested them. And he said, If you will give earnest heed to the voice of your Lord God, and do what is right in his sight, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statute, listen to this, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, the Lord, am your healer, Jehovah Rapha. Now, let me give you the whole picture. When Moses threw that tree in the water, is that the only tree in Scripture? Wasn't there a tree at the beginning of time surrounded by waters, a tree in the garden called the tree of life? Isn't there a tree in Revelation 22, a tree in the holy city Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, called the tree of life. Wasn't there a tree right in the middle of history called the cross, the tree of life? At the beginning, there were no diseases. At the end, there are no diseases. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And neither shall there be death, nor mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the first things are passed away. There are no diseases. At the middle tree, there are none either. What he's doing is building a community that has as one of its aspects healing. 
And so when God heals, it's not just to make you not sick. It's to build into you a part of what the community will look like at the end. And when James 5 says, Is any of you sick? Go ask for the elders. They'll come and anoint you and pray with you for the forgiveness of sins. What he's doing is paying not just attention to your physical condition, but paying attention to building you into the community, paying attention to your spiritual life just as well. It's connected to the gospel. You see, it's not just make me unsick. There's a whole picture that God is building here. And it's true with all of your life. Once you get a look at this picture, it's a whole different world. Because God... Okay, let 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 me tell you... Let me make a quick transition here. When we talk about the end times, as you go out and get this together, you're going to see on television, and as you talk with other Christians, you're going to talk about, you're going to be be uh, be talking to people who, if they are Christian, they will have basically three different views of how God is going to close out the world. And what I'd like to do is give you. Um, a picture of these for your own edification so that you can understand how other Christians picture the end of the world. Um, And then I'll draw a few conclusions after I give these to you. First of all, most of these pictures are given with the word millennium. Millennium means a thousand-year reign of Christ's peace, either figuratively or literally. And I'll give you the three main groups that have different theories on their interpretation of the Scripture. Now, all of these groups are Christians. And you know me, I believe that if God has something in existence, He has it in existence for a purpose. And every one of these, in my thinking, adds to the Christian community. Adds something special and something significant. So I don't want you to think this is Christian and this is not, because every one of these believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. Every one of them believes in the sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ and the necessity of that. Everyone believes that that is the only source of justification. Every one of these believes in the second personal, visible coming of Jesus Christ. And every one of them believes in the ultimate judgment and the separation into heaven and hell. All of these are Christian. Some Christians, though, believe, and this is the majority of Christians in America, this group, in the pre-millennial coming of Christ. They believe that the kingdom of God is not really in operation here. The kingdom of God will be in operation after Jesus comes and starts a literal 1,000-year reign where he rules all of the nations with a rod of iron and he personally sees to it that peace is kept in the world. Now, if you're a part of this group, and, and we have every one of these groups here at Northland, if you're a part of this group, you will be very... Um, you will be very anticipatory toward the coming of Jesus Christ. You, you will read Scripture literally and find where every even symbolic uh, notation has a correspondence with what's happening in the world. You will be convinced. I talked to a guy this week that set up an appointment with me, and I said, well, would, would uh, you know, a week be all right? And he said, well, I don't know if that, maybe God's coming again between now and then. That makes me a little uneasy, but okay, we'll chance it, you know. I mean, he was really... He's really ready. He's really ready for this to happen, deal. And 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 you will, you know, all of the weather changes. Anybody seen the the latest Life magazine? The three most catastrophic weather systems in the history of this country have all happened in the last 12 months. 
So you kind of look at, even my dad, who's a Roman Catholic and hardly ever talks about, you know, Roman Catholics aren't quite as conversant. You know, he loves the Lord, but he doesn't really, he's not, he's an old Roman Catholic. They don't talk a lot about God, but he called me up one day and said, Joey, I think God's trying to tell us something here. You know. (laughs) You get kind of antsy. These folks believe that that the important thing for Christians to do is evangelize. I mean, that's the reason you got a job, is to evangelize, uh, to, to, to make people Christians. That's the reason you, you play Little League, to, to work in an opportunity for evangelism. And, and they also believe that because the world's kind of going down the toilet, just going down the tubes, that there's not really a lot of need for social improvement. You don't try for societal reform. You don't mess around with politics. You, look, it's all going down the tubes anyhow. In Kim Riddleberger's uh, uh, analogy, um, the, the analogy would be these folks, if they were on a ship and somebody came by to polish the brass on the portholes, they'd say, don't bother, the ship's going down. Don't bother polishing the brass. Now, the good part of these people is that because they keep talking about Jesus coming again, they get the rest of our attention. You know, when somebody comes with a sandwich board, repent for the end time is near. Man, you start paying attention. And the good part about paying attention is that once once God gets your attention, He can say anything He wants to to you. That's a wonderful thing. Now, Jesus could come back tomorrow. But whether He does or not, I kind of like people that get me thinking about Him coming back because it makes my time that I've got left so much more productive no matter how long it is. I remember one time I was a... I, went, I did my undergraduate work at Ohio University, and, I, and it, when I was in school, it was when they first came out with salad bars. They had only invented lettuce a few years before this. <laughs> and I can remember going in the cafeteria, and, and the, the tongs are in the, the bowl, the salad bowl, and I, and I started to reach for these thongs, tongs, and I saw this huge paw come in and grab the tongs. I looked at this hand, I went, ooh. And I looked up. It was a tackle on the football team. I looked up like this. And he looked down. (laughs) And I was riveted (laughs) on whatever he was going to say. He said, oh, I'm sorry. Here, you go first. I can wait. He handed me the tongs and went... By the way, do you ever get behind somebody in a salad bar line that they're picking out pieces of lettuce that they want? That looks like a nice piece. I think I'll have some of that, one piece of that purple cabbage. It just drives you crazy. Not me, boy. Saw this football tie. What? You know? Handed it back. The thing is, though, that he had my attention. He could have said anything he wanted to say, and I was ready to hear. That's the good of these people. They can they get your attention back on the Lord, and you're ready to hear. You're ready to get ready. See, second group is the postmillennialists, and those are the folks that say that that Jesus is coming after we prepare for Him. That this these things all got fulfilled in in the destruction of Jerusalem, the predictions, and 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 they concentrate on this verse 14. Look, the gospel has to be preached to the whole world, and then He's going to come. And so they run around saying, man, let's get, they, they're optimistic. You know, they, they look at the world and say, hey, I think it's getting better. You know, I think the world's getting better. We're, you know, we need to Christianize society so that we will be like the good uh, 
steward who, who kept his house in order because he knew the Lord was coming back or the, the owner was coming back at any time. That's what we need to do. We need to keep our lives like that. And so they invest a great deal of their energy into Christianizing America. And that's good. If, if they were, in the, uh, if they were in the, on the ship analogy, they would say, I don't think the ship's going to sink. Polish the brass. And, if, and, and the sooner you get the, the brass polished, the more ready we are to land. They would be people who are very optimistic about the nature of man. They would say, well, not all sin will be eliminated, but a good part of it will be eliminated. We're making progress. And these people are wonderful because they're optimistic. I like to hang around optimistic people, even though I can't always go along with the extent of their optimism. I had an aunt like this one time. We were driving over a place in Cleveland, Ohio, and I was doing my student teaching in Cleveland, Ohio. And Man, this is a old, lousy old neighborhood, you know. All the, all the houses looked alike. It was black because it was in... Uh, uh, an industrial, I mean, smoke black. It was an industrial uh, section of town, and I, I was in a lousy mood that day, and I said, boy, look at all those houses. And she looked over and she said, yeah, just think of all the Christmas trees and Easter eggs. <laughs> wow. So yeah, that's these people. Oh, I think we can do this deal. Well, the last century, most people were post-millennialists, and it's why so many societal reforms were led by the church. Women's suffrage was led by the church. The abolishment of slavery was led by the church. And so on and so forth. There were so many improvements because people wanted to fix up society so that the Lord would come again. Now there's a third group, the amillennialists, or what I like better, the term present millennials. And these people say, you know what? Good is growing, but so is evil. And as they grow together, they, they, like the parable of the wheat and the tares, they will both become more and more evident. They will both, at the same time, grow into more and more of what they are. These people believe that the, the doctrine of creation and the doctrine of redemption aren't the same, but that we have an obligation to redeem the creation for God as best we can, even though the world may be going down the tubes morally. They would say, yeah, the ship's going down, but polish the brass anyway. It's our job. They would say that the church will get stronger and stronger even as the world gets more and more valueless and separated more and more in hostility. They would say that the community of the church will grow together because that's what God's forming. That's the kingdom he's reigning in right now. Whereas he's sovereign over the whole thing, he's building up his church. To be a picture of the community that Christ enabled and embodied, that Christ modeled and made possible with his death on the cross, that's what God's doing right now in the church. One time in my ministry, I knew this, this couple and... In their, mar- in their marriage, he met the Lord and she didn't. And I watched them grow for several years and she became more and more involved with alcohol, more and more di- addicted. And at first she really hated it. She would, she would hate her life and try to, try to uh, kind of repent on her own and get her life together and all that kind of stuff. And you know how that works. It doesn't. We can't pull ourselves up. But I watched his reaction and the sicker she got, the more loving he became. And she never did turn toward Christ. 
She got sicker and sicker and more and more belligerent and more and more hostile and more and more angry. And he became more and more loving, more and more giving, more and more understanding, prayed for her longer and longer. That's exactly the picture that these people would have of the world. As the world gets worse, the church gets better and more and more of a servant to the world. So those are the three pictures. And I'm going to build on those for you in the coming days. Until that time, as I've given you that indicative, here's your imperative. Your imperative is Matthew chapter 25. As I, as I explain Matthew 24 for you, I want to keep you to keep Matthew chapter 25 in mind. There's three things. There are three parables in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 says... First 13 verses, parable of the ten virgins, keep watching. Don't take your eyes off the coming of the kingdom of God in fullness in Jesus Christ. Keep watching that because that's how you'll know how to build the present. Get whatever resources you need to last in your watching for Jesus. Second one, the parable of the talents. Keep investing. Keep giving yourself over and over. Whatever God has given you, you give. You give so that whatever is of Him in the world, it can grow. And the third one is keep loving. It's the parable about the sheep and the goats. It's the picture of the judgment when Christ came back and said, Thank you for visiting me when I was when I was in prison and for feeding me when I was hungry and clothing me when I was naked. And people say, Why don't we do that? Jesus said, you did that as you aggressively loved, as you aggressively acted as people of mercy. That's our job. So we know what to do in part. I want to give us a picture of why we're doing it. Come next week, I'm going to tell you some things that will amaze you. I love talking about the future. I've been a member of the World Future Society for 20-some years. I lo- I, you know, and, but I've never seen anything that could predict the future like this book. I want to tell you next week how we're going to live 10 to 15 years from now in a very, very, very different world if God doesn't, if the Lord doesn't come back before them. The technological advances are, are amazing. Um, and I want to build that picture for you next week. This is also, I, I hate to even uh, um, advise you to do this, but bring your friends, bring your relatives, bring your enemies. That's a part of the last community. Lion lay down with the lamb. You can be the lion or the lamb, whichever you want. But, you know... I want people to know the direction society is going and the vision of God that he's building. I want people to know that. So don't bring them to this service. Bring them to an evening service, but bring them. You know? I, look, I think we've still got plenty of room here. I don't see why people can't. You know, the fire marshal you know, probably would have a fit, but anyhow. Stand up. Stand up. Here's the way I want to close our service. I want to close our service with the Lord's Prayer. And I want you to pay special attention to the words, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, because that's what we're going to be building here. Now for you, Presbyterians, we'll use the word trespasses this time, okay? Uh, We'll switch off. We know there's everybody here. Pray with me. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. See you next week.